0: The Pilot to Pilot Podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com.
1: Hi, my name is Jan Jasinski, and uh, I'm currently a Citation 3 Plus pilot in Canada. Aviation Nation, what is going on? And welcome back
0: to the Pilot to Pilot Podcast. Today's podcast is with Jan Jasinski. Jan is a Canadian photographer, aviation photographer, and pilot, and we talk about a lot of things, just how he got in aviation, photography, getting his first camera. How he would go up to strangers and just want to take pictures with their camera, and doing the most Canadian thing ever. They would say yes, and <laughs> do that in America, you get looked at weird. But it was a, it was a really cool story, and it was fun talking with him. And it's really cool to see his career and where he's come from and how he has gotten to where he is today. You enjoyed today's episode please leave us a review on itunes you can also check us out on spotify and leave us a review there as well and check out pilots coffee hopefully the laddies blend will be coming back soon we just put another order in so uh, it should be showing up here soon and we'll be able to get those out and i know i've been getting a lot of emails about that but it's coming back it's not gone forever it will be back uh yeah but i hope you enjoy this podcast without any further ado here's Jan jazinski Again, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast.
1: How's it going, Justin? Thanks for having me today.
0: Yeah, it's going well. Uh, I appreciate you reaching out and I appreciate setting this up. As I was telling you, uh, my kid is putting up fights for naps. So what was supposed to go down like 30 minutes ago has now taken an extra 30 minutes. So if anyone feels that pain, let me know. Let me know any tips and tricks for uh, figuring that out.
1: Yeah, no, I don't have that problem for now, but I'll just <laughs> remember whenever I do have a kid one day, so right.
0: just come back and listen to your episode and you'll you'll figure out what you need to do. <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go,
0: perfect. Yeah. Well, cool man. Well, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, the first question I ask everyone is why did you become a pilot? Well, not even a pilot. Why were you interested in aviation?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um basically my parents are they came from Poland. Uh, they immigrated to Canada like over 30 years ago. And they always encourage kind of the unusual type of activities for their kids. So traveling and, uh, you know, nothing like watching TV, all that sort of stuff, but just discovering your passions, etc. So essentially, um, we would travel to Poland every summer to go visit our families. And I was always fascinated by transportation. And I actually like was in, in love with dump trucks and like garbage trucks, super random stuff like that. Uh, And then eventually, like, I can't remember what age it was, probably five or six. I just like noticed airplanes at the airport. And I was like, oh, that's freaking badass. Like seeing these airplane tails, like just behind the terminal building, seven fours, DC-10s, all that sort of stuff. I was like, dude, that's freaking cool. Like, I don't know why nobody else doesn't like airplanes. Like, this is just logical to me. And uh, yeah, I just like, I don't know, I saw the shapes of them, the colors, and then you kind of, this was pre-internet days, so it was like you saw an airplane, you know, paint job or an airplane name, and you're just like, dude, where are they going? Like, are they going to friggin' like, what is this part of the world they're going to? And everybody's just like, come back to the same place. I just thought it was fascinating. And uh, yeah, I just grew from that point on, like I just couldn't couldn't get enough of airplanes.
0: That's funny. The the old uh, before Internet where you wanted to know where they're going and then you're disappointed to find out they're just going from like Toronto to Cleveland. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, oh, OK, never okay. mind. <laughs> I thought they're going to Bali. What the heck?
1: Yeah. Who wants to go to Cleveland? You know? <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> hey, I lived in Northeast Ohio, so I'm allowed to say that. So don't anyone come at me for that one. All right. <laughs> I'll go Toronto. I hate that place. There you go. It's close enough, right? <laughs> yeah well cool well uh, so what was kind of the next part was there anyone in your family that was in aviation or did you had to, had to you have to drag them to the airport to go look at airplanes kind of what was next
1: oh yeah i definitely manipulated my family into kind of making aviation revolve around their lives and uh i think i had a grandfather who was supposed to be a pilot in the world war ii but uh he eventually um, found out he had cancer and he passed away so he never actually made it to become a pilot um, but I think maybe that has something to do with the fact that, you know, I'm flying today, but other than that, uh, I'm the first generation pilot in my family and yeah, they were really annoyed with me when I was young. Cause I would have a fight with like, you know, going to other places. I was like, Nope, we can't travel if we don't go past by the airport or if we don't do an airplane activity, I'm not going to be happy. And I was stubborn. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, so, funny. so how did they,
0: how did they kind of cope with that? Do they eventually just give in or do they fight you for it?
1: No, they gave in because, like I said, my parents are always really supportive of our passions. And, you know, they, they obviously saw that there was something inside of, like, me that I was going to grow into a, a career at some point. They didn't, wasn't sure if it was going to be a pilot or not. But, um, yeah, they were like, he clearly likes airplanes, not just to piss us off, but, like, he, he really likes airplanes for a reason. Um, So we'll kind of, you know, accommodate him as needed. And, uh, yeah, that kind of turned out, I suppose. <laughs> so. When did you actually take the steps to start becoming a pilot? Um so like when i was a kid honestly i was a really bad student in high school and i was always daydreaming about airplanes and i was kind of stressed cuz people would tell me like oh you got to be really good in math and you need to excel in school this and that and i was like the total opposite not cuz i wasn't capable i just i didn't know how to study right like i was just daydreaming and i thought i was stupid So when I went to college after high school, I did graphic design for three years. And that's when I told myself, like, you know what, like get your shit together and actually like start becoming a real student now. And then my second year in college, I started flying privately, like doing my PPL. And that was a shit show because I maintained doing college and flying. And I was doing no studying for like ground school. I didn't even know what like ground school was. Um... VNC c charts all that sort of stuff like they would introduce you to it but i had no idea what like the scale was or what the projections meant all that sort of stuff And yeah, I was really disappointed in myself because I had a like high standard of it and my instructors were like, oh, well, like you have good hands and feet skills, but like that's not everything to be a pilot. And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Like, wait, I have to study. This sucks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that was kind of like a unpleasant surprise for me. And uh, to be honest, when you have nobody to kind of guide you through the process, it's you can't even like blame people who suffer through that because again, flight schools only give you so much information. Um, so yeah, like I, I stopped flying at that point, finished my college degree, and then I got into a two-year aviation management program when I was, uh, I believe, 17 or 18 years old at that time. And um, that was just as bad as a program as my graphic design one. <laughs> but uh, the point was to get my licensing done. I got my commercial license through that, uh, my multi-engine instrument rating. And at that point, it was like 2018 or maybe even 2019. And there was like definitely jobs out there for pilots. But when you had 250 hours or like maybe 300 hours of flight time, you're you're nobody, right? Like Yeah, you can't, no uh, yeah, you can't get a job. And people were telling me like, oh, yeah, you can get a carrier job easily or like a Pilatus. And I thought that was true. And like eight months in, I was just like, oh, well, like nobody's offered me a job and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I've been flying, I guess, I guess you could call it that, um, like f- five years ago, I started the whole process and now uh, where I am today on the Citation 3 uh, Plus has been the whole journey. When you're going back to the start, how did you even find like
0: an, an airport? How did you, how did you choose? Did you just Google, I want to be a pilot? And the first one that came up, you called and went and went to go see, or did you do a lot of research?
1: I worked the ramp, actually, my first job in aviation. Oh, where uh- uh, it was in Ottawa, so that's where I'm from. Okay. Like uh, I'm in Gatineau, actually, it's the, the French side, but it's like bordered with the capital of Canada. Okay. Um, so it's just easier to identify with the capital. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah, like again, I started uh, aviation photography when I was 11 years old. Like I really got into it, and that escalated eventually into like a serious passion of mine and a hobby. So getting like my first ramp job when I was 16 or 17, I was working for like a contract company for WestJet called ASIG. And I actually got fired from them like two months in. (laughs) What'd Uh, you do? Well, I I was supposed to go to some air show, uh, like the biggest Air Force Base in Canada. And a buddy of mine bought tickets for me that was like 300 bucks. And they were just like such assholes, excuse my language, um, at that job. Like they had no passion, they were super miserable type of people. I was just like young kid, you know, like eager to get into aviation, be a pilot, all that sort of stuff. And they hated me for that because it was like, no, if you're not miserable like us, then you're not part of the group. So I told them, I was like, I need this weekend off. Like I never asked for any time off, but I need, I can't like work this weekend because it's an expensive show and, and I'm committed. Like before I even signed for this job and they just didn't didn't care, like they didn't want to accommodate me. They didn't want to do anything about it. Uh, so I called in sick, right? Like I wasn't going to skip the air show when i came back from from that air show like on a monday uh, I, I knew they were gonna fire me like i just knew they hated me and they were looking for an excuse to get rid of me and to be honest like i wasn't sad or anything i was just like honestly this is just such a toxic environment that i was probably gonna quit anyways um and yeah it was worth going to the air show and eventually i uh, kind of uh, got into another ramp job um and then i discovered there was a flight school at the airport So I went over to to them while I was kind of in between those jobs, and I was like, "I want to get my license. Like, how much does it cost? What do I have to do?" And yeah, they recommended the college program. Um, But again, like I went to college uh, at that time because uh, of my situation. And yeah, I sort of just went to the local flight school at my airport, and there wasn't many other options.
0: Yeah, what what airport was it?
1: Ottawa Airport, okay.
0: I've been to uh, one. Where have I been? It was uh, I've been. I flew freight to Charlie Yankee Mike X Ray. I think it's just the freight airport, right? Yeah, yeah. Mirabelle Airport. Yeah, Mirabel. Yeah. That's what it's called. I went there, and it was weird because when I got out, for some reason in my mind, I forgot that I was in like the French Canadian side, so or Canada, Canada. Wow. Uh, so. <laughs> When I got out and they said bonjour, and I was like, uh, my mind like froze, and the only other language I kind of know was Spanish. So I said hola back to them. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure they just like, what is wrong with this dude? And they just walked away. <laughs> yeah. So that's my only experience being in Ottawa right there. So good, good memories, good memories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, Mirabelle is an interesting airport. It's uh, it really
0: actually,
1: they, um, they make the C Series there, their A220. That's where they make the A220. Yeah, that's the primary hub there. And actually, there's two uh, 747 SPs based there from Pratt & Whitney. And they do all the engine testing on the new aircraft on those two airplanes. Um, so I would actually like spend my own time and money to rent out my friend's Cherokee to overfly the airport whenever they would come back from test flights. And I would try to get like aerial shots through the small window of the Cherokee. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so thank, thank God I succeeded. Cause I don't know how much money and time I wasted trying to do that. <laughs> right. I wonder, so I only went there, it was like three o'clock in the morning. So you weren't
0: seeing anything, but I remember I had a lot of big structures, either it was hangers or what it was. So that does make a lot of sense. They
1: just kind of told me it was the freight airport. That's where all the freighters go. Yeah, yeah, you got all the FedEx is going in there and cargo. Uh, it's kind of an interesting airport history too, because it was supposed to be uh, sort of like the JFK of uh, of Canada back in the day, because it was situated super far away from the city, and they were have the abilities to have like six to eight runways and like kind of terminals. But then people said it was too far from the city, and then politics got involved. So basically, what became of the airport is it's just a freight airport, and like you have Airbus based out of there. But it's a huge, huge, huge terrain. And like it was going to be literally JFK. And of course, like Canada has nothing at the end of the day. Because it
0: has (laughs) a really weird runway setup. It's very strange. Yeah, exactly. I don't don't think I've ever seen an airport with the same runway setup, but just those two runways like that. Yeah, it's
1: super unusual. And uh, they actually used one of those runways during COVID to park a bunch of wide bodies and uh, Premier Transit and whatnot. So that, that was a cool site, but uh, obviously for the wrong reasons, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's keep going with your your training. Uh, what was your training like? Or I guess a better question, because you mentioned how you, you had good kind of coordination. You could fly an airplane, but you really struggled studying. And I know you're not alone in that. There's a lot of people that feel that way. So what did you do to overcome that? Because obviously you are a pilot, you're flying a jet. So somehow it clicked
1: where you had to start studying, right? Yeah, you would hope so at least. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I had good feedback from my instructors, um, they were really good and they were saying like, Oh, you're, you're doing really well in the airplane, you know, like you're, you're capable of doing all the lessons. So that kind of gave me a confidence booster. And I just assumed that that's all it took. Right. I was like, Oh, it's, uh, you know, I'm progressing and that's it. Like next step. Um, and then I realized that there was like written exams involved for the private. And I was like, Oh, I need to study for that too. Like, I didn't know that. And I got, like I said, mad at myself, because I I was sure that I was meant to be in aviation. So I kind of quit flying for probably four months. And I bought this online ground school called Harv's Air, which uh, kind of like Glam Aviation or Shepherd's Air of Canada. And I was like, until you like don't go through all the lessons in this ground school stuff online, you're not touching an airplane. That's what I told myself. I was like very strict towards myself. And like, I was, I was an asshole to my family. Like now that I look back at it, because it was summertime and I was like, I'm not enjoying my summer. Like I'm getting my PPL and that's my top priority right now. And they would like ask me stuff or like bother me in between studying. And I would just be like, get the hell out of here. Like I don't have time for this. I need to study for this. And it was just like terrible, like such a different mentality that I had back then. Uh, So yeah, after like, three, four months of studying, I told myself like, okay, you know what? Like I think I did a pretty good job. Obviously I don't know everything, but I think I'm confident enough to go up to the exam. And, uh, yeah, I went up to it. I passed it. It wasn't fantastic grade or anything like that. But like for me, to be honest, um, I'm not good. I'm not a good exam taker. So for me, the most important thing is to pass not at the bare minimum, but enough where it's like, hey, like you did your best. You know, you have enough knowledge to obviously like have the abilities and and the knowledge required to be a private pilot and the rest of it is just an English exam. So whether my answer was not the most correct versus like still correct, I didn't care. Like that wasn't my goal uh so once that was done i went back to the flight school and i was like okay i got my written done so i want you guys to give me as much flights as possible right now i don't care what it costs because like at this point like the longer you expand your flight times the more it's going to cost you anyways right so um yeah from that point on i just kept flying and uh i don't remember when it how long it took after that but uh, i did my ppl and i actually partialed it with uh, the diversion Uh, That was one item that I failed for it. And it was sort of a mix of um, miscommunication and confusion because I knew exactly what the kind of diversion I was going to get in the practice area. But he sort of like wanted to cut the time of the flight. So instead of doing the full procedure, he told me to just do half of it. And that totally threw me off. You know, like when you when you're PPL, you like train for a specific procedure from start to finish. And it's like the situation becomes half and you're just like, uh, like I like unable to cope with this change. Like, I don't know what the hell just happened. Funny. And, yeah, You're right, though. Yeah. And it was like an interesting, I guess, human factors experience just right off the bat there. And I was flying towards the area where he expected me to fly, and it was a lake, and I couldn't find the lake for the life of me, and I, I was just, like shocked. I just didn't understand. I'm like, dude, you know the area, like you've been here so many times, and you can't find it today. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? And then I told them I was like, I don't know where it is, and when you admit that, obviously it's a, it's a failure. So uh, I was totally devastated when that happened when we landed said, you know, really good flight test, but unfortunately I have to partial you because you know, you couldn't find the, the diversion point. And I was like, I couldn't even tell my dad. I was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be a pilot anymore. Like I failed already. This is like the worst day of my life. Uh, I'm not even going to bother to like do redo the partial and like it's game over. So I was being dramatic. <laughs> you know? And uh, my dad was just like, what the hell, like, just like relax and I'm sure you'll be fine the next time. Uh, so yeah, I had to go up with another instructor and just kind of redo that one lesson, and then a few days after that, uh, you know, I aced it obviously, and and I had my PPL, and then all the emotion that I had the week before went away. I was like, okay, like you know, I didn't actually mean that. I didn't want to be a pilot anymore, and I'm going to continue with my commercial now. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: I think it's a natural response to failure, though. I mean, you you kind of get embarrassed a little bit, and you. I was always told that it's okay to to take 24, maybe 48 hours, be sad, and then you got to get over it. Like you got to keep moving. You got to move on and you got to keep going after your dreams. Uh, If you just continue to think you're a failure and you can't do it, then you're not going to get anywhere. And so many people have failed check rides. Uh, I mean, airline check rides, private pilot check rides, instrument, commercial, um, CFI, whatever it is. And they're still pilots. They're still flying around. So failure is not the end of the world, especially with what this pilot market is looking like right now and how they are pretty much hiring anyone that has any kind of hours right now. So uh, yeah, exactly go back up and do it it's okay uh, i mean if, if you're sad about failing it's a good thing because you take it seriously and you want to keep going i'd be more worried if you didn't have
1: that reaction after you failed a check ride yeah 100% no that's that's good uh that's a good attitude to have and uh, it's all about maturity right like i'm 24 years old now i'll be 25 soon and it's just like perspective of life changes so much within like compared to when i was 17 18 and uh, i just find it really interesting and obviously that's going to get even better as i get older yeah, yeah. for sure so how how difficult
0: was it to continue training after that or after once you passed it did you not think about the failure anymore and you're
1: just ready to go and you have any other issues Yeah it actually got easier for me from that point on uh, in terms of self study and actually progressing myself uh, because at that point I, I had like a goal in mind and I was kind of on the right track to to my being you know, a commercial pilot um, and I knew what it was like. So I saw, okay, this is what's involved now. You need to study, um, you know, you need to memorize procedures, emergencies, all that sort of stuff. So the structure of having done the PPL and having had that failure kind of helped me towards the commercial. And uh, it was pretty smooth overall from that point on. The, I did get screwed over a couple of times with like the flight schools and the aviation program. Because uh, the flight school that I had, they didn't actually own, uh, sorry, the aviation management program didn't actually own any of their aircraft. They would subcontract it to a flight school. And then there was some like financial um, challenges going on between the the mechanics and the flight school. So they both decided to separate the contract from each other. So then imagine having a flight school with no airplanes. That's exactly what happened. Wow. (laughs) That's not going to work out too well. You no, know, and that happened at the worst possible time for me as well because I had a, I was about to do my commercial check ride and I went to the flight school. I had one more lesson to do, it was like short takeoff, uh, field landings, and takeoffs, something like that. And my instructor knew that I was probably fine with it, but he still had to see it. You know, he couldn't risk his own um, reputation on, you know, this guy's going to figure it out. So I go to the flight school and I was like, Can I get the Cessna 150? And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't I can't give you the airplane. I'm like, well, I have it booked and it's right there outside. Like, what the hell? Like, why can't you give it to you? And she's like, I can't legally dispatch the airplane because I I can't disclose the information here, but I just can't give you the airplane. And I was like, I like don't understand what's going on. And then she came in and she was like Basically, we're bankrupt and like, I can't, don't tell it to anybody. Like, I can't really talk more about it. But yeah, like, we're, we don't have any airplanes.
0: (laughs) That's crazy. They didn't like send out an email and be like, Hey, just letting you know you're here.
1: We'll give you more information later, but don't show up. Like, you're not going to be able to fly. (laughs) No, I was, I was like the only one in the flight school, too, super quiet. I didn't think that was unusual because like that did happen. But I was just like, You got to be kidding me. Like, I need one more flight for a check off. And then it's my flight, my flight check. And I was just like, totally disappointed and i didn't know what was going to happen um and yeah there was there was some drama like honestly i had no idea that you could have drama like this in aviation especially when like when you're the student you're t- you're the client right like you're the one with the money um well we don't have money but you know what i mean <laughs> you're the one that gives them the money and i went to my program coordinator from the program and i was like hey uh like i'm literally at the edge of finishing my commercial license here so like what is what are my options and he was a ex-car salesman and he didn't have a very good reputation with students because he was really into making profit off of students that was the whole idea behind him being in the program and he owned the share of he owned half the airplanes or a few of them so every time you'd fly it he would get a profit off of it so he was like, Oh, well, you should go to this other flight school, like, uh, whatever 20 minutes drive from wherever I was doing it. And, you know, you'll continue your progress from that point on. And, uh, we'll just get your check right down over there. And I was against it because I knew that as soon as you change flight schools, it's a new area, it's a new procedure, you know, the instructor doesn't know you. So it's not going to be one lesson. It's going to be like 10 lessons. And that's a lot of money at that point that I've already invested. So I was like, um, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna do that. And like, I know you don't like the idea of me saying no to you because you're technically like in charge, but hey, it's my money and it's my career. So like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. And he was super pissed off that somebody like stood up against him. And that's where my like Eastern Europeanness came in. And I was just like, hey, like, don't mess with me. <laughs> like, like, I have a goal in mind right now. And like, I worked my ass off to get here. So yeah, I think I'm gonna figure out my own solution. So I contacted the mechanics that separated from the flight school, and I was like, "Hey, I know your airplanes. I've flown them, and I know you just relocated to like another airport not too far from here. So can I just like rent the airplane out with my instructor and do the lesson and then do the flight test on it?" And he was like, "Yeah, no worries. You can do that. You just need to do a a check ride with me for insurance purposes." It was like a .4 flight. I was like, "Yeah, no problem. You know, like that's that's super easy." So I did that and then I even messaged the examiner because I knew who was going to be in beforehand and I asked him, I was like, Hey, can I like do this with my instructor in the airplane? And then can I do the flight test in the aircraft with you? And he was like, yeah, it's no problem. There's nothing illegal about that. And like, as long as you have the insurance on it, it's all good. So I did my flight test and uh, thankfully I passed on the first shot and I did it on a 24,000 hour Cessna 150, which when the examiner found that out after the flight, he was like, yeah. That.
0: <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Don't fly never that ever again. He's
1: like, if I would have known that, that would have not got to that airplane. <laughs> A twenty four thousand hour Cessna one hundred and fifty. Wow. Yeah, I that think Canada used and some, used. Uh, most high cycle aircraft in the world for flight training. It's like absolutely insane. What do they buy the ones from Embry Riddle or Florida afterwards and go fly those? <laughs> Oh, no, I think that would be an upgrade. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I passed my flight test. And then I messaged him because I had to tell him that I wanted to start my multi-training. And when he found out that I went behind his back and did that, he was so pissed that I, like, figured out a solution. And he actually threatened to throw me out of the, flights, uh, the aviation management program. He was like... Oh um like I didn't authorize you to do that, this and that and uh, like I'm gonna throw you out of the program for misbehaving and all that sort of stuff and I was just laughing at that point because I was like, dude, you literally have no grounds to expel me from the program because I didn't do anything illegal and I made sure of that because I found that out in advance obviously because I saw this coming and I actually recorded like phone conversations with him just to back me up in case something did happen and uh, yeah he was just super pissed he hated me for that. And I was like, I'm sorry, but like, it's my career, you know, like, I I don't care what you think. And this is this was the best solution for me. And I felt bad for other students in my class who were in a similar position as me because they were too afraid to kind of stand up for themselves. And I don't blame them because it's a difficult situation. And they dragged on to doing their commercial flight test like six months in later, or if not longer. So it was just like, a, testimony to me seeing if I hadn't done what I had to do at the time, I would have just like delayed the entire process of my career by at least six months.
0: What are, do they have planes yet? Are they still trying to figure out a way to to get that going, or is everything do you check back in with them at
1: all? Yeah, like the original flight school that did go bankrupt, I think they got four airplanes running now, so they're kind of operating. But I think the program sort of transitioned over to the other flight school. Uh, where they have a little bit more airplanes, like they have a D42 now and uh, like just a bunch of 172s. So I think the program is sort of bounced back to what it is. Um, would I recommend the program to anybody in, in today's circumstances? Definitely not. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it depends, right? Like I have a college uh, diploma out of it, aviation management, um, it took two years, so it wasn't very long and it was relatively easy. Um, but if I were not to be a pilot now and actually had to go into like management and aviation, I don't know shit. (laughs) A lot of it's real world experience too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like a lot of people kind of feel like that cause I have an aviation management degree as well. And I, if I was to go into management, I mean, I feel from what I've learned from being a pilot and seeing how management reacts uh, it's a lot about treating people right too. Like, I mean, like you don't want to treat someone how that guy treated you. So if you, you're already one step ahead of them and in, in figuring it out, if you just treat people the way that they should be treated. Uh, so I mean, it's really not too far off and I'm sure you would surprise yourself if that situation ever had to come up.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think actually, I think he left the program now. I don't remember for, you know, if he voluntarily left or if they got rid of the, of him. But uh, yeah, anytime anybody who's done that program in the area, if you say his name, it's like 99% of the people are going to be like, you know, F that guy. (laughs) That sucks. There's always some bad people in aviation. I mean, there's bad people in everything, but
0: there's definitely some shady people in aviation. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, what's what's the
0: general aviation kind of landscape look like in Canada? Obviously, a lot of people that I talk to are in the United States and we all kind of know what it looks like here but what's it look like up north is it thriving or do a lot of people come down south to the states to do their flying
1: yeah no i don't think a lot of people go to the u.s just because it's uh, it's kind of a foreign option for a lot of people like you don't think about going down there and saving money by doing your flight lessons um but if i were to redo all my flight training i would have probably just done that because um first of all weather in, in the united states is much better typically especially if you go down to like florida well, that automatically like makes your flight training much faster versus our Canadian winters. Um, but other than that, like there's quite a few pilots up and coming in Canada, for sure. There, there's a shortage coming that's already kind of suffering from it. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a matter of a lot of people don't, don't finish their flight training. You know, they say, oh, I want to be a pilot and they might do their PPL and then they start their commercial and it sort of drags on for like two, three years. And for me, it was like, if you're dragging off for two, three years, like, you know, put finances aside, because it's obviously a lot of money. Uh, for me, it's kind of like, you know, are, are you going to commit or not to, to this career? Because once you get going, you sort of, you know, you got to get into it. Um, and obviously, everybody has a different situation and circumstances. But if I were like... Obviously, COVID, you know, gave me a delay in starting my first job, but I felt the effects of it, like having not flown um, instrument approaches and all that sort of stuff for probably a year after my flight training. I definitely felt the effects of like lack of knowledge and study, all that sort of stuff. So, a lot of pilots, like I said, they they just don't finish their training, and then they're left with having 250, 300 hours, no experience, so like really unlikely, um, unlikelihood to get a job anywhere. And that just makes it even harder for them. So,
0: How hard yeah. is it to get a job at Air Canada or WestJet or Rouge
1: or any kind? I don't know. Is Rouge still a thing? Did Rouge, Rouge didn't go under, did they? Or did they stop that? Oh, they just downsized. They had 7.6.7s okay. seven, that were going transatlantic into the south, and they just got rid of the fleet of those. So okay. it stopped uh, like 319, 320, 21s. Got it. I remember, yeah, I remember hearing something about them,
0: but I couldn't remember exactly what happened. But let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. You work hard flying the line to build financial security for your family and yourself. However, to prepare properly for retirement, you need more than hard work. Having a co-pilot to help guide your route can be the difference between struggling through retirement and living comfortably after your final landing. Not sure where to start? RAA can help. Learn more about RAA's commitment to the aviation community and what it's like meeting with one of their specialized advisors. Founded by Pilots for Pilots and with four decades of financial planning and investment management experience. RAA is intimately familiar with unique benefits, risks, and career timelines that pilots face. Whether you're early in your career as a pilot or you spent years flying the line, RAA is here to help you navigate your financial journey from takeoff to touchdown. For more pilot-specific planning tips, go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. What's, uh, What's kind of, is it hard to get a job there? Is that everyone's dream when they're going? It's like, I want to be an Air Canada pilot. Talk about that
1: yeah, it's uh, I think Air Canada is pretty pretty big goal for a lot of pilots in Canada just because it's the flight carrier and you know you got the best travel benefits and the best salaries eventually when you stick around the company. Um but it's slowly changing. It really depends on your lifestyle and sort of how you've had a what your career in aviation look like. Um, but apart from that, like getting to Air Canada right now, I believe they're asking two thousand hours total time which is probably very unlikely to actually get in with 2,000 hours because you got like 5,000 hour, 10,000 hour guys coming from uh, Emirates. Like a lot of Canadians who sort of worked in Canadian aviation for a few years, you know, they get their jet time and whatnot. They realized that our salaries were just a joke. Like we we really don't make a lot of money compared to the US and other countries. So those guys would go to the UAE and fly triple 777s and A3s, captain and making like huge monies, right? And then they would come back to Canada eventually because they sort of missed the lifestyle of being in Canada um, and the culture was different. So a lot of those guys are coming back to, to Canada, like direct entry captain, say, Flare Airlines, like low-cost carriers that are popping up in, in, across the country. And all these guys who are getting on at WestJet, like 1,500 hours, um, it's usually super contact-based, but also they usually have some sort of jet time, like maybe it's with CRJ. Uh, maybe they had q400 time and whatnot but it is competitive to get into to the airlines like it's pretty rare at this time to get in at 1500 hours usually like i said they they want 3000 hour applicants ideally but uh the crisis is coming back very fast and uh i think they're going to be forced to get those 1500 hour people
0: what's your goal for for kind of your career in flying do you want to go fly fair canada are you like the corporate
1: side are you still feeling it out I like corporate for now, to be honest. Uh, You know, it's very common. People say you don't know till you try, and for me, it's hard to say whether I would go airlines or not. And the thing that throws me off about airlines is sort of like dealing with all the passengers in the back, and just like when it's such a massive company, at some point there's just like so many ends uh, around it, and I kind of. I don't know, I just don't have a, like, it doesn't appeal to me at this time, especially like, you know, I don't have a family, I don't have kids, anything like that. So schedule wise, I'm sure it'd be a lot easier at the airlines. Um, But it's also kind of more boring in a way, because you're usually just, especially if you're flying domestic Air Canada, you're always doing the same runs, you're usually on the same coast. So that could get kind of boring. And I think the whole thrill of being a pilot is being able to go to different destinations, all that sort of stuff. So my goal in aviation at this time, like I'm not going to lie, when I see a G650 or a Global 6000, which I do see very often, I drool. I'm like, holy shit, that's a big ass airplane and it's friggin' nice. Like the entire interiors are just beautiful. The cockpits are fantastic. Like so much technology for the pilots. You've got like a crew rest area, a nice lavatory. Uh, it's just like, I don't know, the luxury behind it is super appealing to me. Um, but again, it's all about lifestyle at the end of the day. So I have a friend of mine who does fly global 5,000 and he used to fly uh, on a three thirty for one of the airlines. And he said that he misses the schedule of the airlines. Um, but like the adventure of flying the global is really cool. But at the same time, you're on call all the time. It's a private owner. So you kind of have no life, like you get home all the time and they're like, Hey, we're going to Europe today. And he's like, you know, yeah, that's cool. But to be honest, I'm not feeling it today. so. It really depends. Yeah. Is there,
0: so a lot of Americans love Goldstream. Obviously they're made in America. Do Canadians love Bombardier or the Global? Is that like the dream airplane because it's made in Canada or
1: do they still love Goldstream too? Uh, yeah, there's definitely way more Bombardier products in Canada. I pr- they probably cut them a deal, to be honest. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, like I'm, I'm sure there's something going on behind the scenes. But uh, yeah, there's really not a lot of Gulfstreams in Canada. There's uh, I actually saw one Canadian Gulfstream 650 in Thermal California the other day. Hey, I was in Thermal the other day. <laughs> oh no, kidding! Yeah, <laughs> you <with> each other. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's funny. I was in
0: Thermal twice uh, for obviously Coachella. But yeah, that's pretty funny.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I did Bermuda Dunes right next door
0: three time. I hate Bermuda Dunes. Yeah, it's a shitty airport. Especially it's so a cool, bad. Park experience. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a mess. And then we can't even use the taxiway. I don't know if you can, but we have to back taxi on the runway because the houses are
1: too close to the taxiway. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that. We, we have uh, enough wingspan to make it through, but I was looking at the latitudes part there and I was like, I wonder if those guys make it through that. So, so to yeah, know, you
0: know, <laughs> 73 feet long. It's not working out over there. We'd be uh, knocking down some houses. <laughs> I'll you some days off though right you know <laughs> I don't know we have a hundred and thirty something latitude so they probably have another one sitting there unless they fire us for for going against the company's wishes
1: <laughs> yeah yeah for yeah.
0: sure wow that's a huge fleet that's more than our entire fleet <laughs> yeah we have uh it's a big big company so a lot of people don't really understand that but we have like the fifth or sixth business biggest fleet uh from all our fleet in the whole
1: world at any airline so got a lot of planes lots of planes yeah, no, that's awesome. Maya. But uh, it's hard for Canadians. So it's a huge discussion going on in Canada right now because of our wages. Uh, like, I'm I'm actually doing fairly well for being on a right seat of Citation three plus. Like, my salary is quite good um, compared to the airlines. Like, if I were to go regionals, I would be taking a huge pay cut right now. And um, like, inflation is a serious discussion these days in Canada. Like, cost of life is is getting quite expensive. Well, um, if I would have taken the regional job or would have gone there, I would definitely be feeling a lot more stress in terms of finances. Um, whereas with this corporate job, it's like um, it's a fair salary, I would say for sure, from my experience. And uh, the ability to upgrade to captain is uh, probably about two years from now, maybe three so, you know, I mentioned my goal was being going like on a Gulfstream 650 or a global, but realistically, like I would want to go captain a citation and get that, you know, Jet PAC time. And then I could be like a much better candidate for uh, any jobs in the future. And uh, like I said, I'm only I'm almost 25, so there's technically no rush uh, for me to go anywhere. I'm I'm eager to advance in my career, but technically, like where I am right now is is super good position, and uh, I can sort of take it easy, right? Like just keep working hard towards um, learning the jet and all the procedures, and uh, eventually go on left seat, and everything should be you know smooth sailing from that point on. How did you find your corporate job? Um, hmm. I know a few people actually because I do aviation photography. So like that's obviously I think that's how i am known mostly is for my photography, not being a pilot. That's kind of secondary, uh, and I get like a lot, I have a lot of connections in aviation because of that. Like I'll just take photos of random airplanes, and then I my goal in aviation photography is to be creative, have like kind of a different out- outlook on the photos. So a lot of people um, when they see them, they're like, "Oh, that's really cool," or like, "Could you take a photo of me?" Um, Or I'll send them to them being like, hey, I took a really neat photo of you if you're interested in seeing it. And that way you form connections. So then you listen to this podcast like, you know, you've heard it a thousand times. But again, I'm going to say the thousand first time connections in aviation is everything. And you never know when they're going to be useful and like who you know, who you don't know. So like be yourself. Um, obviously, like you know, don't be fake because people don't like that either. And if you be yourself, and somebody say gets triggered by your comments or your your views on something, it's too bad. You know, like it's you're never gonna win with everybody. So you you just gotta sort of you know be the best that you can all around towards people and just be friendly. Um, But be yourself. And like again, if you don't get along with somebody, then that's not the opportunity that was meant to be for you. And you'll just end up somewhere else and it'll probably turn out for the better. And that's kind of what happened to me. So yeah, I, I took photos of this legacy 450 coming into Ottawa. And I did it strategically because I was really interested in applying to this company and they hadn't responded to my application for like two or three months. And they were probably just super busy, so that's why they didn't respond. And I was like in between, uh, I think, days off with my previous operators. So I went to the airport and I knew a uh, 450 was coming in. So I went to the FBO where I used to work as Sky Service and I took photos of them. And when the captain came in, I was like, Hey, my name is this and that. I know you don't have time, but I took photos of you. Here's my card. Send me a message. I'll send you the picture. So it was like super awkward, very like direct conversation. And I was like, I hope he didn't take that. I was like the wrong way. But like, I know corporate pilots, like sometimes you have no time on the ground, right? Like you're in and out. Um, so yeah, the guy contacted me uh, like a couple of weeks after that. And he was like, do you have the photos of me, this and that. And he loved them because they were like close-ups of him on the cockpit and stuff. So then eventually he referred me to uh, to the company additionally. And then I had another um, friend of mine who actually, I just added him on Facebook one day, cause we happen to have something in common with photography. And then we started chatting and he was like, oh, I used to fly 777s triple sevens here. And now I'm back in Canada. And then like a couple months into the discussion, he told me he used to work for, for Air Sprint, the operator I worked for. And he also referred me to the job. So when I got called, they were like, well, you got two referrals now. So like, that's for sure the reason why you got a call today because I wasn't even meeting the requirements for the job posting. They were asking for 2000 hours and I only had 1250 at the time. So I was like considering myself super fortunate to even get a call for, for this position. Right. And uh, yeah, the interview, um, actually funnily enough, like speaking of, of this uh, interview, I was like 10 minutes late because they sent me this link for something that was super unusual to use for interviews and it wasn't working and like my browser wasn't supporting the format all that sort of stuff so, like when the interview time happened, I clicked the link thinking that, you know, all good. And then it was like, surprise, <laughs> I'm not getting connected. And then I was stressing out and I like emailed them and I was like, oh, there's some problem on like the server, like making some stuff up. Right. Cause I was stressing my life out trying to figure it out. And then my battery died on my computer and shut down. I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, this is the worst like thing ever. And, and it rains uh, yeah. and pores, man. Jeez. Yeah, it was just like such a stressful thing. And I told myself, I was like, yeah, you already like screwed up this interview so bad, like forget the job. Uh, and that's not what happened. Like we had a two hour interview, it was basically just like having a conversation like we are now. And uh, yeah, that was that went really well. He didn't care that I was late. Obviously, you know, I acknowledge my mistake and all that sort of stuff, but uh, they didn't care. They know that that sort of stuff happens from time to time. And yeah, shortly after that, uh, I got a call actually when I was in the U.S., I converted my license to the FAA, uh, got my commercial FAA license now. And when I was over in the U.S., he called me and he said that uh, he basically wanted to offer me the job. I just had to rewrite a specific exam in Canada that was close to expiring. So when I converted my FAA license, I had to go back home to Canada and then drive to Toronto to write this 50-question exam which thank God I passed. And then I sent that to him the same day. And then like the next day I got a call and he was like, do you want the job? And I was like, hell yeah. It's <laughs> so- Awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> it's really cool to see how
0: like obviously aviation's about who you know. But if you don't have those contacts and you have a cool skill set, like taking pictures or something like that, you can kind of, I don't want to say weasel, but I don't really can't think of a better word right now. You can kind of make your way in there sometimes, you know, you can help yourself stand out. Because there's so many different applications that they get that probably look and read exactly the same. I have 172 time, PC12 time, caravan time, King Air time, whatever. But if you don't stand out, you're never going to get that phone call. So the way that you went about it is a good way to stand out. And I know for a fact getting recommendations is huge. And everyone says, how do you do that? And it could be as easy as just going to the airport and talking to the pilots. Be like, hey, you fly for this company, right? Like, I would love to fly there. Is there any way that I can just, like, take 10 minutes out of your day one day and talk to you? And then you form a relationship and they're like, yeah, you seem pretty nice. You don't seem like you're going to kill me if I take you out to coffee or anything. So I'll give you a recommendation. You know, like it's just, it's not as easy as that, but that's a way that you could go down that route.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And like, again, I take photography, like, you know, I sell my photos from time to time and I get published in magazines, all that sort of stuff. And um, I usually obviously ask for compensation, you know, in, in some sort of way. But there's been so many times and instances where the compensation was having the connection or just having that person work at a specific place. Uh, Like for example, um, in Switzerland, when I was there a few months ago, I got a tour of the Pilatus factory and this was still kind of during the pandemic situation. So you weren't really allowed to have visitors, but uh, this was a contact that I didn't even know I had because he knew I took aviation photos like 10 years ago. And then he found me online and he was like, oh, it's kind of funny that like, we found each other again after 10 years and I work for Pilatus and you fly PC-12 and he was just like i find that really cool and then i was in switzerland and he's like do you want to tour the factory and i was like yeah man that's freaking awesome and like you know i'll take photos for them and i don't mind giving them photos for free because it's it's not about that right like i value myself as a professional but like i i know which instances kind of involve asking for money versus not and uh, yeah that eventually leads to even better opportunities in the future so it's uh, it's really cool I'm looking at your profile right now. and only see
0: one flaw. I don't see any latitudes on here. What the heck, man?
1: (laughs) Man, there's no
0: latitudes up here. That's why. That's BS. There are latitudes everywhere. You can make it happen. (laughs) I I will. I saw (laughs) saw my buddy Ryan, Diecast Ryan, likes all your photos and comments and stuff. And I give him so much crap for not taking any photos of latitudes. that I've almost bullied him in. I don't like saying bullied, but I've almost bullied him into taking a photo of a latitude to post on his feed. But he still hasn't done it yet.
1: Come on, Ryan. I'll have to message him and give yeah. him some shit. Dude, come on, Ryan. Step up your game.
0: Ryan. Right? I try to troll him all the time, and he always says, "There's no latitudes." Like, dude, you live right next to Dolus. Dolus <laughs> has latitudes twenty-four-seven. You fly in helicopter. Like, don't you give me start? Yeah, I'll do Ryan. The and you can't
1: spot a latitude. Come on, man.
0: Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no more excuses, Ryan. The internet's coming for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> How
0: would you get into um, aviation photography? Has it always been kind of a something you love to do uh, i know that you loved aviation at a young time but where did photography come into the mix
1: yeah that came through um like when i mentioned earlier when i was probably seven years old you know traveling all that sort of stuff i i went online because i had to figure out like what the hell a 737 was or a 747 like i needed to know the differences between them so then i think i discovered airliners.net which is a aviation photo database website And I was like, holy shit, like there's so many photos of airplanes on this website and there's like so many different paint jobs and like different lighting conditions and and the photos that stood out for me were the ones that were creative. So stuff that was like kind of maybe shot against the sunlight, it was backlit, but it like created this really cool effect on the fuselage, the sun shining off of it. And yeah, that just got to me. I was like, yo, that's really cool. Like it's artistic and it's like, it motivates me to be a pilot because it's just like the beauty of aviation and landscapes or the weather surrounding the, the scene it was just like fascinating. So uh, I started off with like super basic point and shoot camera that we had at home. And uh, yeah, my photos were terrible, obviously, because you didn't know what you're doing as a kid. And it's like a limited camera back then. And obviously technology was still kind of developing itself. And then uh, my parents bought like a family camera for 350 bucks at the time, which was a pretty big expense for for my family uh we were we we're four kids so I have three older sisters so like you know they have a lot of expenses for all three kids and I started playing around with that like just taking photos of stuff around the house like they had um, like they had a cross on the wall in their room like um, a Catholic uh, cross and I would like, I don't know take the camera from underneath the cross and just like point upwards toward and they were like oh that's a really unique perspective of like the smallest things that like you don't even notice in life and they sort of saw that there was something in me that had a talent i suppose and um yeah then i started discovering cameras online i was like oh like thousand dollar camera i need it." you know it's like 13, 14 year old kid, and they're just like, Yeah, like are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah, you're gonna break it in like, two days. <laughs> Why can't you just have a toy for like 20 bucks? And I was like, No, I need a camera now. Like I need to develop my my horizons. And uh funnily enough, like anytime I would see strangers in public with like any DSLR camera, like anything that changed lenses, I would like bug them as a kid. I would just be like, Hey, can I use your camera and take photos? And they'd be like, uh <laughs> yeah like who are you <laughs> that's such a canadian thing for someone to say yes to that if you're in the states i'd be
0: like oh get away from me, you weirdo <laughs> yeah, <you're shot. laughs> that's funny sure.
1: so yeah i would bug people for that and i had like no shame in asking them to use their cameras and then i would like kind of discover what i liked or i didn't like about using that camp person's camera and then when i was 15 years old my parents bought me my first dslr for like 800 dollars from costco and i was like Yeah, I was like heels over or whatever the expression art is for that. Um, Yeah, I was just like friggin' ecstatic about it. Right, I I took it out and I took my first like moon picture and I was like, oh my God, I can see the moon and like you can actually see the details of it, all that sort of stuff. Uh, And then I got bad news. They had to return the kit or something because they said that it was like too expensive or that there was going to be a better deal in the future and that they were going to repurchase the camera for me at a later stage. So that was like heartbreaking to me because he was like, I finally had it. And then they took it away, uh, but they kept their word. And and I got something even better, like a few months down the line. And yeah, then I would bug my dad. I couldn't drive obviously to the airport. It was like a 25 minute drive and he would always finish work at like five in the afternoon. So then I would bug him. I was like, okay, you're done work. Let's go to the airport. Let's take pictures of airplane." And then he was like, I don't have time for that. Or like we can go tomorrow, all that sort of stuff um but my dad was extremely supportive of me like seriously looking back now he was really dedicated to taking me to the airport whenever he could and if ever there was a diversion it was like a triple seven coming to the airport i was like oh my god triple seven's coming over i was like dad drop your shit we need to go to the airport <laughs> Dad, quit your job what are you doing
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly you not uh, get it? a triple seven's coming <laughs> he's probably like all right what the heck
1: is wrong with this kid <laughs> Yeah. And then like we would get there like super late to the airport and the airplane was like short final. And I was like, dad, I don't care what the speed limit is. It's like 60 kilometers an hour. You need to gun it right now and get to the end of the runway. Like and he would would do that. Like he would actually go like 100 kilometers an hour, like totally illegal down the road. Just like for me to get the shot. And uh, yeah, that was a good dad for sure. Absolutely. That's awesome. How
0: did you, uh, I guess... How did you get like a following on Instagram? Was it just people liked your photos over time? Did you have one photo that really popped off? Was it uh, the community sharing
1: each other? Kind of talk about that. Yeah, there's actually a website called airplane-pictures.net online. And they support creative aviation photography. So when I started taking airplane pictures, I was doing what everybody else was. Just like your basic photo of an airplane, like super basic editing. Um, So the kind of boring shots, like everybody can do it. And then uh, I saw photos from um, this Norwegian guy called Jorgen Siversen, who to this day is like one of my idols. He just like unreal photos, obviously coming from Norway. And then the other guy was a guy called Calvin Kofsari. He's not really into the aviation photography scene anymore. He was from Toronto. And both those guys were just like editing their photos in such a way where they would just pop like the colors on them. the, The compositions were just unreal to me. So I started do, trying to imitate their styles, uh, not to copy and paste them, but I was just like, oh, like they're, they're doing something different. I need to try it out myself, and I got a lot of criticism for it at the beginning, like because uh, a lot of old-school photographers they didn't like the new style of like having a lot of colors in your photos and stuff. So it was kind of tough for me at the start because I felt that there was something in in the editing that I was doing that like was really cool but obviously I lacked the technique so it kind of looked like shit at the end of the day and uh, eventually I was just like all right I got to figure this out like I know that if I get the right technique and I keep doing what I'm doing that I'm going to find a way to have like these really really vibrant pictures that are going to be good quality and that took me several years to achieve, and like I still discover new methods to, to better my photos these days. So then I started uploading it to that creative website that I mentioned, AirplanePictures.net, and they were supporting um, those different edits and whatnot versus Airliners.net and the other websites that kept rejecting them because they were saying that they were like too edited, uh, over edited, and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, like I don't agree with you, so screw you. I'm not gonna upload to that website anymore. Like that's just discouraging, right? Um, yeah, so the other website was kind of, uh, the source of where people started to recognize my photos and then had a lot of requests when I was like in college, um, because nobody else had photos like I did. I was kind of went outside of the box and, you know, did stuff nobody else would do. And then they would say, Hey, can we use that for our website? Or I'd like to print this out of my house. And then that's when I would be like, sure, like, give me a hundred bucks if you can. And they'd be like, yeah, that's fair. Like, whatever, I can give you that because like, I respect what you do. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, that's that's a nice way to compensate me because it is a lot of time and my own investments right into the camera gear and like Photoshop subscriptions, all that sort of stuff. And then uh, I got Instagram probably, God, like, it must be six, maybe eight years ago already. Uh, a time flies by. And I was like one of the few people who was posting aviation photos on Instagram at the time. So obviously, like, you know, the problem with Instagram now is there's an oversaturation of content. So it's really hard to get noticed. But me at the time when I started my following, I I got that exposure because like I said, there wasn't many of us. So I like started off with, you know, a few followers and then that quickly grew into like a 1000. And then flash forward to today and I have like, Almost 40,000 followers, which is huge. And like, I don't know who actually knows me in the aviation industry, right? So, uh, like, I, I got to be careful with what I post and my opinions, all that sort of stuff, because I don't, I sometimes forget how, how big of a following I have. And uh, it's really awesome because that way I have connections and like people really appreciate my photos for that. And a lot of them are pilots or just have geeks, photographers, a whole mix of, of people like that. And yeah, repost from um, like Instagram aviation is a big page on on the platform and they would repost my photos at the start. And that's kind of what grew my following initially. Like they would reshare one of my pictures and tag me and then people back then would actually go on your profile and then they would follow me. So I I had days when I started where in one day I would actually get like 500 followers or even a thousand followers. Like I would refresh my page and I was like, holy shit, like... I just got like a thousand followers, like that's pretty epic. And um, honestly, my growth's been really slow the past two years. Like I haven't really gained any followers, and like I said, I think that's due to oversaturation. Like people just don't notice your content anymore, and that's that's more of a platform issue on Instagram, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, well, they also kind of interested more in the reels now too, and fo- so yeah, they're just uh, Instagram's just pushing different things than what they used to. So you got to either become more creative or just kind of be happy with what you got right now. I feel like so.
1: An interesting time to be on Instagram, that's for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I uh, yeah, I've been looking into doing more video stuff because you know, being a pilot, we get some cool access to views and whatnot. So uh, I'll probably get get into that a little bit more. But um, I've just been so busy the past year, like you know, I had my PC12 job and then just kind of like bunch of life things happen. And then uh, flight safety for the CJ3 and company training, just like way too busy. Uh, I guess, you know, real adult life stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> so- you didn't have time to make reels during your real adult life. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I'm 17. Yeah,
0: oh, no. <laughs> so- Same here. <laughs> far, far from it. Uh, well, awesome, man. Well, we've been talking for about almost an hour now, but I got some rapid fire questions for you. And you told me that you have a good ugliest airplane, so I can't wait for this one. And now it is time for the rapid-fire section. Today's rapid-fire section is sponsored by Sirius XM Aviation. With high-resolution coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always-available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and Tracks. Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out AOPA.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself you ready
1: yeah ugliest airplane is a polish pzl m-15 so anybody listening to this podcast you need to put that into google and just like be ready to vomit it's the ugliest thing you'll ever see (laughs) i'm polish and i don't have pride into that airplane design (laughs) that's really funny it's like i love poland but they do not make a good airplane (laughs) yeah
0: they screw that one up (laughs) that's funny all right what's your favorite airplane ever made then
1: MD11 and DC10. What about corporate jet? Uh
0: G650 or Global 6000. Ooh, you said Gulfstream first and you're Canadian. What are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm you're more American than your Canadian. country.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot?
1: Uh I wish I knew more about the options of becoming a pilot so uh buying your own airplane and building your flight time on that airplane and then selling it back um, i wish i would have done that i would have saved myself a ton of money and had access to an airplane much more who in the industry would you like to meet most mm, harrison ford cool. ask him why he landed on the taxiway
0: <laughs> i don't know how that question will go for you if i ever knew <laughs> Harrison, if you're listening to this, if I ever interview, I probably won't ask that question. <laughs> I probably will, I'm not going to lie, but just in a nicer way. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite thing about aviation?
1: Um, the people, the, the connections you can make, and the access to, uh, to, to airplanes and different opportunities uh, that people have around the aviation scene. What's the hardest flight you've ever flown? <laughs> Um, Flying up north, uh, yeah, that was a tough one. I actually thought that uh, we might have to um, force land somewhere up north Uh, in the PC-12 to this uh, strip 3,500 feet made of gravel, gravel, and we went there all the time. And uh, yeah, this will just be a short story for those listening. And essentially, we did a 3.7-hour leg on the PC-12 with quite a bit of cargo and some passengers, so we were already stretching the limits of it. And there was some convective weather forecast up there, which never happens in northern Canada because it's just not the climate for it. And I got unlucky twice in my career with thunderstorms up there. And the only thing you can rely on is your onboard weather radar. And there was some thunderstorm cells right on the final approach fix and just like totally in the way of us landing there. So we had to dodge a lot of cells. And then at some point we came in for the approach and it was like vertical visibility of 150 feet or 200 feet. So there was no way we were going to make it in. Like you couldn't see anything when we got down to minimums. So we went missed and then we had to deviate from those cells again, going over like a body of water. And we're single engine PC-12 up north. So it's like kind of sketchy in a way. Uh, so we started de- from track like severely to get to our alternate airport up north. And then there was even more cells up there, like right over the airport, more serious. And there was a 737-200 coming in up there, probably about the same time as us. And when I made the call to them, I was like, hey, I know you're faster than us and you're a jet, but like you need to get the hell out of our way because like we're pretty close to having a min fuel emergency here. Uh, so they were like, OK, no problem. We'll just like hold somewhere out here. And then we couldn't get into the airport because the cell was right over top of the airport and it was stagnant, it just wouldn't move. So like the captain was stressed out, I could see it. It was his first time doing that run. I I was really used to doing it and I was also feeling the pressure. And we're looking at our fuel and we're just like, oh man, we got probably like 40 minutes of fuel left and we're still like 10 minutes out from landing. And if we don't make it in, we gotta go missed. And there's literally nowhere else to go from that point on. Like there's no suitable airports, it's super remote. and and everything's made out of gravel and it's just like not having it right um and thank god like we finally made it in after the storm cell moved and we landed with yeah like about 40 minutes of fuel so i was pretty afraid at that point i was like considering like starting to pray i was like yeah i mean i'm sure we'll make it but uh yeah options are starting to get a little bit scarce here and uh, yeah, that was probably my toughest flight that uh, I'll definitely remember forever.
0: Yeah, sounds like
1: it. You learn a lot from those flights, though. So learn a lot. Yeah, for sure. What's uh, your favorite flight you've ever flown? <laughs> favorite flight I've ever flown? Um, hmm, that's a good one. Um, probably going up to the most northern point in Canada. It's an airport called Grease Fjord. It's a 1780-foot gravel strip, and it's the most. it's the most northern... Populated point in Canada. Oh, wow. Um, 128 people live there. Solid. 129 because yeah. you're going to move there soon, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. No, I was like, get me the hell out of here as soon <laughs> as possible. Uh, but it was really magical because it's uh, about a six hour flight from Mikalowit, which is the biggest city in Nunavut. Uh, it's like 8,000 people. So uh, with the Pilatus, we had to do a fuel stop in uh, Pond Inlet typically. So three hours there, another two hours up north. And there's no sunrise there in the wintertime, so we went there. Departed like three in the morning. We landed there at eight, and it was still dark. And then you like get out of the plane. and You're super confused because you're just like, uh, like shouldn't it be light out here? And there's mountainous terrain all around. Um, it's super quiet. It's obviously like a really short strip, so it's stressful to come into. But it's like at the same time, just the most thrilling thing you'll ever experience. And yeah, I love that for sure. That's awesome. That sounds like a,
0: sounds like a good experience for someone else to do and hear the story rather than have to go tell that story.
1: <laughs> yeah, I went there three times total, actually. I oh, wow. pilots cool. never get to go there, so I feel definitely fortunate to have done it.
0: Yeah, but that's
1: awesome. I don't need to go back anymore. <laughs> right?
0: There's Yeah, there's some airports like that for me, too, with freight. It's like, uh, I don't know if anyone's jealous I'm here, but like, I'm glad I did this. But never again, never, ever again. What's uh, What's your favorite airport
1: you've ever landed at? Favorite airport. Oh, that's a good one. Jeez, um, anything, honestly, anything that's got nice scenery around it. So uh, I would say Pond Inlet Nunavut is a really nice airport. You got these massive like 8,000 foot mountains on the approach. Um, I really enjoy that. But also I like American airports like Florida's or California where you got the coastlines and palm trees all around. Um yeah, I like that sort of stuff. What's your least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Uh, that's a good one, too. Let's see here. I won't say Teterboro. I don't mind Teterboro, actually, because I, I find the workload is kind of more fun that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, least favorite airport, Resolute Bay, Nunavut. <laughs> at the worst airport, man, there's been like three airplane crashes up oh, there. Wow. And there's actually been a 737 crash years ago with fatalities, which is just really sad but i had a layover there once and you walk around like a fokker 50 wreckage that had fuel starvation on final and then there's some other airplane wreckage there and a helicopter crashed there last year as well so it was just like a really really bad vibe for me every time i had to go there uh, it's a pretty big runway for the north it's like five or six thousand foot asphalt there's only two or three asphalt runways up there but the number of crashes they've had and just like how remote it is from everything. It just gives me like a really bad vibe. I don't what's, like it. <laughs> what's the reason for the crashes? Just people
0: stretching it on fuel, or just bad weather conditions, or just poor mistakes, or what? Yeah, bad
1: weather conditions. The uh, the fact that it's so remote from everything. Like uh, for like, if you use it as an alternate airport, you're really stretching it. Depending on your aircraft type, uh, in the case of the seven thirty seven, I think it was pilot error, and they did a C fit crash. Um, I might be wrong. There's a it's a first air crash. So anybody listening to this podcast, if you're interested in in Googling that, uh, there's plenty of information about it. But yeah, it's just like one of my captains at some point told me that the airplane went mechanical and they didn't want to send a maintenance guy up there. So they made him do repairs in like minus 60 degrees Celsius weather uh, because they just didn't want to sp- spend the money on maintenance. And I was like, yeah, if that would have happened to me, if that I would have done it. <laughs> And just like, just that story alone, I was like, yeah, if you're going to send me to Resolute bay and I'm to expect that kind of treatment, then no. (laughs) Wow. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? Favorite airport. Um, Honestly, I haven't been to many U.S. airports. I like Teterboro just for the fact that uh, Jet Aviation has a gym upstairs and like I'm a big uh, gym jog kind of guy. So when I was there for a few hours, I was like, all right, I'm going to do a workout on my uniform here. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I thought that was cool.
0: What's your favorite airport food? If you're, um, let's say you can go get a crew car, go get food,
1: what are you going to go get? What are you going to go get? If I can find a Poke Bowl, I would get a Poke Bowl. Other than that, um, anything pretty healthy, like a chicken wrap or stuff like that. I know you like uh, you like Chick-fil-A, I believe, stuff like that. Yeah, I don't mind stuff like that as well, as long as it doesn't give me bad effects in the air. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Airbus or Boeing? Boeing.
0: IFR or VFR? IFR. Favorite airline livery? Um, KLM. Would you rather fly as many trips as possible, so like as many touch-and-goes as you can do, um, or one long, long flight? Many trips, short hops um biggest regret in your career so far if you have one
1: biggest regret uh or being organized when i was young and uh, just kind of having a lack of knowledge be, being a kid essentially <laughs> just having a better structure what's and the biggest oh that. sorry you yeah go ahead, ahead. no you, you can finish uh, sorry yeah no no it's fine what's the biggest win of your career so far biggest win um i think being being on a jet at uh, 24 years old, right seat is uh, it's a pretty big win right now. I can't really complain. Uh, a lot of people are still you know flying, uh, doing the commercial licenses and whatnot. So I think being my age, uh, being on a jet and getting that experience and now is really a huge privilege of mine. Piper, Cessna, or Diamond?
0: Cessna. 141, oh, I guess this is kind of an American thing, but would you change your training up that you did? Uh, is it similar to like a 141 61 feel? Like, do they have more uh, accelerated programs and versus more like small town airport training?
1: Yeah, you can do like an ATPL program. So you get all your uh, licensed and dental schooling. Um, I don't regret not having done the ATPL program because I think you end up paying more money doing that sort of program. And the only advantage you get is by having your um, ATPL written exams completed. But uh, other than that, it's uh, much more of a money grab and typically a longer process. So I don't regret having done it, I guess. um, Yeah, whatever part you guys would call it. (laughs) Yeah, whatever that one, whatever you just said.
0: (laughs) That's funny. Uh, Last but not least, what is your favorite airline? to fly on as a passenger obviously
1: <laughs> that's a tough one because i haven't flown on many airlines uh, i've got a good connection at air canada so i typically get to fly uh, with air canada for uh, a good price um they're they're fine they're pretty good overall but i would like to think that um like etihad uh, qatar emirates they have a pretty high standard for even economy passengers i did fly qatar once so i'd probably have to say them that's cool that's fun yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on
0: the podcast, man. It was uh, it was an honor having you on. I wish you the best. You're doing a lot, man. 24, flying a jet. It's pretty cool. It's a, it's a good experience. And just keep on going after your dream and wherever that may take you. You know, It could be taking some cool photos somewhere. Maybe one day you'll be flying a 787 for Air Canada or Airbus 350, whatever you guys have. So uh, I, I wish
1: you the best of luck and thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I've uh, been listening to your podcast for uh, past a uh, year or so. When I was flying up north on the long stretches, I would tune into your podcast, I love and it. Uh, admittedly, sometimes I'd pass out to them because they were too relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but That's I always rewind and go back to wherever I, I left off. And uh, yeah, it's it's really nice to hear everybody who comes onto to your podcast, and uh, it's an honor to be on it. And uh, thanks for taking the time in between uh, having your your fresh sun out there and all your responsibilities and all.
0: Uh, anytime I really appreciate that and uh, I'll have to start screaming in the middle of my podcast so I can wake people up then
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's just gonna add more views you know
0: (laughs) right I just randomly scream but uh, yeah man I appreciate it and thank you so much
1: yeah awesome thanks so much Justin we'll stay in touch and all the best
0: Aviation. that is a wrap. I'm sitting here with Emmett in my lap right now. Thankfully, he's being very quiet and very cooperative and chill. Uh, It's been wild, man. We actually just went under contract on a house. So moving to the Triangle area of North Carolina is happening. Uh, It's crazy. I'm excited to get back down to North Carolina. Life's just crazy busy. Continuing to get these out. I'm probably going to do an Ask Me Anything next week. So be sure to follow me on Instagram at PilotThePilot, and I'll be putting up a box and you can ask me questions don't do an Ask Me Anything on the road. So let me know what you think. I really enjoy making all these for you all. And I hope you're enjoying every single podcast that's been coming out. Shout out to Kevin, the editor. He is doing an amazing job and really appreciate you. Aviation, that's a wrap on this episode. I Hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.